This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 54. Today we speak with G.K. Beale about his book, The Erosion of Inerrancy in Evangelicalism. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I have with me today Nick Batzig, who's a church planter just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. How are you doing, Nick? I'm good, Camden. It's outside of Savannah. Outside of Savannah, Georgia. Excuse me. We also have Jeff Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon, Camden, and Ringo's is about 32 miles from Philadelphia, for those of you who wanted to know. (laughs) We're asking. We're also pleased to welcome back Dr. Carl Truman, who's Vice President for Academic Affairs, as well as Professor of Historical Theology and Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary. It's a pleasure to have you back with us, Dr. Truman. It's great to be back, Camden. And then our special guest today is Greg Beal, Dr. Greg Beal, who's a Kenneth T. Wessner Chair of Biblical Studies Professor of New Testament at Wheaton. It's a pleasure to have you on, Dr. Beale. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, today we're going to be speaking about Greg Beale's wonderful new book, The Erosion of Inerrancy and Evangelicalism, Responding to New Challenges to Biblical Authority. Uh, this is an excellent book, and we'll get to that in a minute, uh, discussing the, the trends that we've seen in, uh, in biblical studies and, and uh, doctrine of Scripture uh, across evangelicalism. But first, Jeff, you'd like to mention that we have several new books. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, the, the first book I wanted to mention has actually just been released uh, at InterVarsity Press, and that's called John Calvin, A Pilgrim's Life by Herman J. Selder House. I think the H-U-I-S is pronounced House in Dutch, or Selder Hoist. Uh, brand new, haven't, haven't had a chance to, to read a copy yet, but that's uh, out there. Uh, also, um, Erdman's uh, has several new uh, Calvin titles, seeing as this is the 500th uh, birthday of uh, John Calvin. It makes sense to highlight those. And then uh, I think the rest of the new books that we're thinking, uh, want to talk about, we will uh mention at the next issue of Reformed Media Review. But uh, there is a book called Friends of Calvin by Michael A. Vandenberg. These are Erdman titles. Then there is John Calvin's Impact on Society. And another edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Uh, this is the first English version of the 1541 French edition. So we will now have uh, the 1539, the 1559, and now a 1541 French edition in English, uh, for those of you who want to keep track of uh, English translations of the Institutes. That's uh, due out on the 29th of March. I think that's where we'll leave off for new books for now, Camden. Excellent. So uh, we'll get to that here shortly uh, in the next episode of the Reform Media Review. And you can visit us at reformedforum.org slash RMR for all of uh, your needs there in terms of book news and reviews. Uh, But today we want to spend um, all of our time as much as possible on the erosion of inerrancy in evangelicalism. Uh, The new book 
from Crossway by Dr. Beal. And this is dealing with several, uh, well, dealing with a, a very uh, prominent challenge in evangelicalism, something that has developed over the last uh, few decades and has now come to a head in uh, recent, recent uh, news and, and has uh, become quite a controversy in the theological world. Uh, Dr. Beal, um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your motivation for writing this book and uh, how it came about, particularly uh, the several journal articles that were written, and why this has been uh, turned into a book now? Yes. Um, I uh, actually uh, had um, been exposed to um, Peter Enns's, uh work a few years ago, and, um, in fact, he had actually sent me an article early on when I was at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary uh, on uh, the rock that followed in 1 Corinthians 10. And um, he put at the top of the off-print uh, something to the effect, aiming for the same mark or target. Uh, I left that on my desk for months, even years, wanting to reply to it, but... Um, one thing led to another, and I just felt the kind of reply I needed to give uh, would have been would have taken a lot of research. So um, I never replied, and then he came out with an article, I believe it was titled something to the effect of apostolic hermeneutics in Westminster Theological Journal. I read that, and I um, thought about replying, but uh, from my own perspective, I thought there were some ambiguities, and it would take so much work to um, lay out what I thought he was saying and then responding. I just didn't have time. Then I heard about his book, uh, um, The um, Inspiration and Incarnation. Mm -hmm. And Again, I didn't uh, want to do much. I just thought it was, you know, kind of a pretty much of a repetition, perhaps expansion of some of the other things. And But then I went to a meeting of... Um, um, some uh, scholars, Old and New Testament, and theologians, um, and uh, there was a very prominent um, evangelical scholar there reviewing the book, and it was the purpose of the meeting, and so um, I thought I would read the book before the meeting and try to read it more carefully and be prepared, uh, perhaps, for some interaction. And I won't say who this scholar was, but his name would be... Um, uh, pretty well known, um, but he basically said that Inns has sailed between the coastlines of fundamentalism and that of liberalism, and uh, while he had some critiques, it was an overall um, good review. Um, it, very intriguingly, right after the review, the scholar said, what do you think, Greg Beale? Um, which I kind of interesting, <laughs> but um, at, at any rate, um, I, I had read the book and uh, actually prepared quite a bit for a number of reasons for this um, uh, book review, and so I, then most of the book reviews were positive uh, that were coming out, two or three. One even entitled in Books and Culture, Would Paul Have Flunked Hermeneutics 101? Yeah. The answer, the answer being yes. And so I just decided, oh, I guess I'll write a reply. Well, about 60 pages later, I wondered who's going to publish this. And, uh, but it fell into two parts pretty neatly. One, 
covering the Old Testament section of Enza's book and the other covering the Old and the New. So I cut it in half and submitted one to Journal Evangelical Theological Society and the other to Thamelios. And uh, he replied um, in both journals, and I gave a counter-reply in Thamelios. Jets has a policy that you can't counter-reply, and so I published my counter-reply in the Southern Baptist Seminary's journal. And then I, I decided there were a number of other issues that really needed to be addressed, somewhat related to what Enns had said. And I just decided, you know, I think I'll just revise these articles that I've written uh, with Enns, giving people a snapshot into the current controversy from both sides, trying to be as objective as I could, um, uh, which, of course, is impossible, but uh, we do our best. We do our best. So... Um, but I also added a couple of chapters on the problem of cosmology. Uh, many would argue that the ancient Near East, uh, um, its cosmology, uh, very mytholo- mythological, has, in- been influent- has influenced Old Testament writers, that we can no longer hold the co- uh, cosmological view of the Old Testament for that reason. And so I wrote a couple of chapters arguing why we can hold that cosmology. The bottom line is I think most of these images have to do with understanding the earth as a big cosmic temple in which God dwells, I think we can hold that view today. They're theological rather than literal scientific statements. Mm. And then I have a chapter on the unity of Isaiah and the controversy there, and a chapter on um, how postmodern hermeneutics has affected the use of the old and the new. And um, I actually also have an appendix on the Chicago Statement, because while many think they know what it says, many indeed uh, have not read it or read it so long ago that they're really not sure. It's, uh, it becomes apparent sometimes when I talk with uh, scholars. I included a few comments in, a, in, a, in an appendix on Bart, because Bart has become the darling boy of evangelical, yes. some evangelical theologians. And uh, those quotations mainly uh, that I say check the context, but most of them show indeed Bart did not identify the written form of Scripture with God's Word, and indeed he believed there were errors and that God could speak through those errors sort of ironic hyper-Calvinism. Now, uh, maybe we should mention really quickly the uh, development of the doctrine of inerrancy, or maybe not the development, but the the place it took with the, the development of evangelicalism. You'd mentioned uh, JETS, which is a journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, and <clears throat> early on when ETS was formed, it, it became this, and uh, some might even argue today, it is the the, maybe not epitome, but it, 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 it's a place where you can go to find out what is an evangelical. You look at their theological statement. And at the heart of that in the, in the past was the doctrine of inerrancy, that you believe that Scripture was the Word of God and that it was inerrant. Now, what has happened since then, this emphasis placed on this doctrine has since uh, began to erode, as, as the title of your book says. Well, um, a few years ago, actually, there um, was a controversy over the meaning of inerrancy as it um, related to the openness of God issue, and and, and there was actually an examination of two scholars' views, one who recanted and um, the other, uh, there was a vote as to whether or not to jettison him, and he was not jettisoned because it took a 65% vote uh, to do so. I think it was like 62%. Um, I actually, in the eyes of some, perhaps ironically, voted not to jettison this fellow, because while I disagreed with his view of inerrancy, 
um, the f- original founder's view of inerrancy, I think that we can no longer um, uh, just assume what they meant. For so many years, you could just, everyone kind of knew what they meant. But the actual one statement virtually in the doctrinal statement of um, the ETS uh, talks about, you know, the scripture being an errand in the autographs, the original autographs, and that's it, basically. And I, I felt, indeed, I was on the uh, ETS board at the time, I felt there needed to be a further definition, because I didn't feel like it would be just to jettison someone on the basis of assumed definition that um, um, not everyone today would assume uh, since uh, the founders, I think, uh, in, in the late 40s. And so, to my great uh, delight, immediately at the end of that ETS meeting, it was recommended that we adopt the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy as an elaboration of our view, and uh, it became a bylaw. It's not a doctrinal statement, but it basically says, if you want to know what we mean by this, check the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. I think that's a very good statement. Uh, I can talk later if you want to uh, about any qualifications I might have about it, but I think it's an excellent statement. That's one reason I put it in the back of my book, saying this is my position, so to speak. So, I mean, that, that's just a little history of the ETS at that point. I think in terms of further developments, you have two things going on. One, I suppose you could call a sociological, but I, I, I'm not sure that's the best word, but you have more and more scholars from evangelicalism doing their doctorates and um, going on and becoming those who are on the cutting edge of Old and New Testament studies. But what's very intriguing, um, a number of students, in my own personal view, go on for doctorates and their theological foundations are not deep, as I think they should be, in terms especially of the uh, inspiration of the scriptures. And when you go into a doctoral program, and I suppose here's a sociological element, um, you're going into a world that defines reality differently than it was defined in your church or your evangelical seminary college. And uh, we humans uh, don't like to be not accepted. We like to be accepted. And to go into a doctoral program with a, a professor and the students think it's weird to hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, indeed fundamentalists, um, then, you know, that, that's a very hard thing to resist. Your foundations have to be really deep. And I think people basically um, have uh, wanted to... Um, be accepted sociologically, if you will. Um, uh, all of us are, of course, influenced by our environment. Um, but it's not unusual to hear people who've since graduated from their doctorates and they've changed uh, in, a, in a direction away from uh, what they used to hold. And um, so uh, I, I think that's one reason uh, for this. The other reason, I think, is postmodernism, which basically uh, has... Uh, the way it's influenced evangelicals, and especially theologians, is that uh, we're not so concerned about precept uh, about um, uh, propositions anymore, but uh, about uh, only God's living voice. Uh, the other side of the coin is is that um, we must be much less confident that uh, about our views of what the Bible says. Otherwise, we're uh, will be held to have the great sin of hermeneutical pride. And I think that's eroded uh, people's confidence in, in the absolute authority and perspicuity 
Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of the sociological dimensions, did you find that in your own personal experience, having done work at Cambridge uh, in the early 80s, uh, did that come into play? And also, with the, the Rogers McKim book, did that have anything to do with, with the general air in academia of the time? Yes, I think so. And I think if you read Woodbridge's response to that, it's an outstanding response. But yes, and I think that um, the whole movement, uh, it, it, it full, I think Fuller Theological Seminary was carrying the flag of the infallibility view early on. Um, that is, the scripture's true with regard to what it's it teaches. That doesn't mean it's true in every aspect of what it uh, is um, speaking about. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think that was important. And uh, I also think that the Woodbridge's book was a very important response for those who um, were exposed to it. I'm not sure how many really read it, but um, that was a very excellent response. Dr. Beal, I wanted to ask you a question now kind of shifting the conversation to the, uh, the more of the inner workings of Peter Enns' um, theology in, in his book, um, Inspiration and Incarnation. Um, there's been a lot of emphasis in the last five years, probably at least five years, on studying Scripture in its uh, context. Of course, Peter Enns... Um, is working with the ancient Near Eastern literature, uh, which you also have worked with in your book, um, the, the Temple and the Church's Mission, and um, the book on Revelation, the Commentary on Revelation. How do we set the parameters for a proper use of extra biblical material um, in studying the Old Testament? Well, I mean, this is a huge, sometimes considered chicken and egg debate. Uh, I. There are some who see that we must interpret the Bible against its um, historical background, and uh, we have to be rigorous in that, so that when that occurs with regard to the ancient Near East, um, some see such close parallels uh, to the Bible that the Bible is interpreted by those parallels. One has to be very careful here. Um, uh, on the other hand, others approach uh, uh, this issue by saying if, if they have a strong view of what truth is in a non-postmodern sense, um, um, that, that, that Scripture um, is true and where the ancient Near East uh, varies from it in terms of myth and what is clearly false, then um, uh, the scripture does not um, absorb that. Um, that's a very simple way of, um, of putting it. Uh, I think um, getting perhaps a little bit deeper, the whole notion of genre, this is, uh, you know, genre criticism is still, I believe, in its heyday. And, and um, so many would say, for example, that the Chicago Statement doesn't take enough consideration of genre. And uh, you have to understand uh, that what an author intends is determined by the genre. And that's well and good. Um, And so likewise with the relation of ancient Near East to the Old Testament, if you see uh, what what looks to be a certain genre in the ancient Near East and the the, the same in, in the Old Testament, then we're going to interpret them the same. Um, 
this this is a very tricky thing because uh, the definition of genre in uh, a number of the parts of the Bible is is very difficult, and there's been a lot of good work showing that the kind of genre you find in uh, the Old Testament is not at all what you find in the ancient Near East, and um, uh, and so it's very difficult to um, uh, define to, to try to say that the um, the ancient Near Eastern genre is reflected in the Old Testament, and then going from there uh, uh, to um, interpreting the Old Testament as containing myths, for example. Philip's Long, Philip, Philip Long's book, for example, is, is very good uh, in, in in this regard. He has a um, a short book. Uh, uh, if the title comes to me, I'll, I'll let you know. It was published uh, by Zondervan. It was on interpreting, I believe, uh, um, historical narrative in the Old Testament. But he he shows very well that uh, the kinds of genres that you find in the Old Testament are just not reflected in the ancient Near East to a great extent. Sometimes, yes. So uh, I'm not sure that this genre criticism is um, is that helpful. Well, those are just some reflections that I have. I'm, there's much more that uh, that could be said. Maybe, maybe as a footnote, but I, there are a number of ways that that scholars, excellent scholars, have seen the ancient Near East uh, relating very vitally to the Old Testament. Um, one one well-known way is that it's uh, the, the Old Testament takes uh, the mythological descriptions of the ancient Near Eastern gods and and uses them polemically. Um, this is a uh, often uh, a use in in the Old Testament. Other scholars will see that there's a reflection of general revelation, general revelatory truths in the ancient Near East and in the Old Testament. Uh, so that uh, again, there's um, uh, some overlap. Um, others have seen that the ancient Near East and the Old Testament uh, reflect a common reflection of ancient tradition that's that's good. Um, um, uh, another view is that biblical revelation did not, did not always counter ancient Near Eastern concepts, but used them in various productive ways that did not mean that they assumed the falsehood of myth. And then there's Peter Inns. That they absorbed these myths, thought they were true, but they really weren't. Now that that, that goes along with the Second Temple Jewish documents. How how do we go about addressing those? I mean, many will say that uh, well, we've had so many new archaeological finds, um, and there's, there's there's a broader Second Temple Jewish context uh, that we need to take into account, particularly with the New Testament. How do we uh, how do we incorporate those uh, in a helpful way? Without, um, I don't know how to put it any other way, is, is without sacrificing any any uh, well orthodoxy. How much time do you have? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll try as best I can. To I know it's impossible. Almost not brief. Impossible. I think that first of all, you probably heard of the book Variegated Gnomism, Volume One and Two by Don Carson Seifert. Mm-hmm. And Peter O'Brien, uh, the idea that uh, what the New Perspective says um, about the law um, and and uh, justification, yeah, there's some 
uh, representatives in Judaism, but in fact, uh, Judaism was very, very variegated, and that uh, that some, in a perspective like E.P. Sanders and some others, have become as monolithic, arguing with their views monolithic, in opposition to the monolithic traditional view of a work salvation concept. And I think now the pendulum has swung back to the middle, even uh, by those who might be critical of Carson's book, that, they, yeah, there were variegated views of justification. And it's the same also with um, hermeneutics. It's very variegated. And so to say that there was a monolithic view of wild and crazy uses, which Peter in says, or at least leaves the clear impression, I think he says it, um, though he gives lip service occasionally, I don't mean that pejorative, but he does acknowledge that um, there, there, there are some what he might call normal uses, but for the most part, uh, uh, Judaism was so saturated with the wild and crazy use uh, that um, it did affect uh, the New Testament writers because they grew up in that socially constructed hermeneutical environment, and uh, they, they couldn't but be affected. Um, and by the way, when I say there were wild and crazy uses, again, uh, some like Peter Enns would immediately disagree and say that I'm imposing my view uh, of the 21st century upon them. They would not have considered this wild and crazy, and that is where we enter into uh, a postmodern view of uh, what is true, what isn't true, etc. Um, so that's number one. Number two, one needs to make a distinction, which uh, Dr. Enns doesn't make, and, and others I don't want to just pinpoint him. I think he's representative of others. Um, I think Richard Longenecker makes this um, particular mistake as well, um, of, of, of viewing, again, uh, Judaism in a somewhat monolithic way and not distinguishing between pre-70 AD Judaism and post-70 AD Judaism um, in um, a very good work by a guy by the name of uh, David M. Stone Brewer, um, Brewer contends, um, this was in the early 90s in a WUNT um, monograph, he contends, uh, what he does is isolate from the Mishnah and, and, and other fairly early Jewish writings, uh, rabbinic exegeses that were pre-70, rabbis living in the pre-70 AD period, and he found that all of them really tried to interpret the Old Testament pretty straightforwardly, pretty much according to Hillel's rules, which none of those involved atomistic exegesis necessarily or allegory. And um, uh, so uh, in, in my own work, uh, my first published book, uh, The Use of Daniel and Jewish Apocalyptic in, uh, in the Revelation of uh, St. John, um, uh, and by the way, Lars Hartman and his work, Prophecy Interpreted, um, half of our books were on patterns of exegesis in Judaism, and mine in apocalyptic Judaism especially, his partly, showing that there was a contextual understanding, even in what you would consider the most wild and crazy genres, apocalyptic. Uh, it was very contextual. So I, I think we have to be very careful, number one, of saying Judaism was non-contextual and atomistic, therefore the New Testament was. Mm -hmm. having, said, having said that, yes, uh, you got Philo. That man is the king of allegory. Um, you, you, you have uses in Qumran that, that are strange, though I don't think there are as many strange uses as many think, uh, as Watson has recently shown his book on Paul and hermeneutics in Qumran. Um, so 
uh, was Judaism unswervingly contextual? Of course not. There's a lot of good exegesis there that uh, um, uh, certainly doesn't make it monolithic. Now, when we come to the New Testament, um, what we do, what we should do in Judaism is exegete, see in and of itself to see how that author is using their uh, uh, Old Testament. We do the same in the New Testament. We don't first go to Judaism and then try to see the New Testament through the eyes of Judaism. Just as in Judaism, we don't try to see Judaism through the eyes of another Jewish sect. We don't try to see Qumran through the eyes of Alexandrian Judaism or Palestinian Judaism, that is, Jerusalem-centered Judaism. And so right. likewise, I don't think we ought to view the um, New Testament writers first through the eyes of Judaism, less judge what they say in and of themselves. And then let's compare what we think their approaches and their conclusions are. Uh, for myself, I think there is an uns unswerving contextual approach to varying degrees. That's an important phrase. Uh, an unswerving contextual approach to varying degrees in the New Testament. And I think the reason for that approach, uh, as C.H. Dodd argued a long time ago in the early 50s in his book, According to the Scriptures, the reason for that approach is uh, because uh, they were instructed by a teacher. They, they, they didn't get their approach from committees. Not many good things come from committees. I, I think many academics might agree with me on that. But it came from one person, and he argued it was Jesus Christ. And what was intriguing is up to that point, a testimony book hypothesis was um, in vogue, that the New Testament writers were not referring to the Old Testament contextually, but they had a testimony list, and they just appealed to this apologetically. God... Uh, uh, really destroyed the foundation of that by showing that really, while you do have repeated quotations and allusions, you don't have many. And uh, what you do have, though, are repeated contexts uh, that the New Testament writers are aware of. They don't quote the same verses and allusions, but they do quote from the same broad context. For example, Isaiah 40 to 66, Daniel 7 through 12, uh, Genesis 1 through 3, or Genesis 12 to 20, Deuteronomy 28 to 32. And God said the best way to explain that is that they were aware of context. And um, uh, furthermore, I think what explains their use are the presuppositions that they used um, of corporate representation or solidarity, the notion that Jesus and the church are true Israel, uh, the notion that history is uh, united by a sovereign plan um, that's wise, so that the earlier parts point to the latter parts and that um, the age of the eschaton had begun, um, and, and lastly, that the earlier parts of Scripture are interpreted by the latter parts of Scripture because they have the same author. Those presuppositions, some would argue, are new to the New Testament, and they distort the old as these New Testament writers read these presuppositions back into the Old Testament. Um, it's very clear these presuppositions are not new. They come from the Old Testament, mm -hmm. even that the Messiah was to be true Israel. So uh, that's uh, a bit of a thumbnail sketch. Dr. Beal, I was going to ask you, how much do you think higher critical approaches, um, even if it's just a mild form of higher critical approach, um, is having any bearing on modern scholarship in the evangelical church? In, in, in some of regard to what we're talking about with the use of extra-biblical material and the conclusions yeah. that are drawn about a developmental religion, perhaps, or um, pitting Paul, isolating Paul, and looking at him in, in contrast to Peter or other um, New Testament writers. Okay, in terms of, uh, of that, um, yeah, I think that uh, it's having a great impact. Um, many would see, it's very intriguing, some would see the scriptures inspired, 
but they wouldn't want to try to compare Paul with Jesus. In fact, they wouldn't even want to compare the synoptics with one another, because they would say that's how they were written. And if you try to compare them, you'll find errors. But you'll hear them say, but I believe in inerrancy, because I don't compare them. That's a very intriguing view. Um, I think to see that uh, the beginning of the end result of uh, the influence of um, higher criticism on evangelicals is to read Kenton Sparks' book, God's Word in Human Words, published by Baker. Um, and basically, Sparks says this, we must now accept all of the, most of the conclusions that Isaiah's got three, artic- three uh, authors, that Daniel doesn't contain true prophecy, and so forth and so on, that there's myth in the Bible, that there are, p- are, are power moves by um, um, biblical writers describing certain figures to try to show them in a better light than other parts of Scripture, and so on. And yet, he wants to use inerrancy. It's amazing. Um, he says that God's inerrant, but uh, he accommodates himself through the human authors, and that's where we begin to get the errors in Scripture. But he still wants to use inerrancy. You, you, you must read the book. Dr. Beale? Yeah. Uh, you, you've just alluded to this question that I wanted to ask. Uh, can you give us... Uh, can you? Um fill out the picture of how you understand the divine author that is God relating to human authors in terms of uh, uh, intent? Well, again, each of your questions you're asking me are um, lectures in and of themselves. So again, I'll try to be as circumspect <laughs> as I can. Um, um, I, I, I think the first uh, way to answer that is to say that human authors spoke truly and sufficiently for their time. I think that they understood what they were talking about, but I do believe uh, that there is a divine author um, who was speaking through the human authors and that the human authors did not exhaustively um, understand the meaning of the divine author. And so that, as you see, especially through intertextuality, which is an a very up-and-coming um, area, especially for biblical theology. Um, one of the best ways to trace um, the meaning of Scripture is to see early text and how they are literarily alluded to and developed later in the Old Testament and then in the New. Genesis 1.28, the commission to Adam, is one of the amazing examples here. But uh, the point is that these texts are unpacked and unfolded, as Voss would say, organically, as a as a seed begins to sprout and as a flower begins to uh, as, as the plant begins to grow and a flower begins to unfold, uh, so that the um, the final uh, uh, blossoms on the apple tree don't look like the seed, but it's organically related. Yes, and if absolutely. you have traced if you have traced the intertextual trail, which we can also call the progressive revelatory trail, it won't be so surprising because you've seen that unfolding occur. And what some New Testament writers will do, they will quote an early New Test- Old Testament text in the light of a later Old Testament text developing the earlier, so that some will say, oh, my gosh, that's strange, that's weird, that, that isn't what the, that author could have meant. But if you were really following the intertextual or progressive revelatory trail, it would make more sense. 
I think that's my first comment. If you want to press more, please do. <laughs> that's something that's very interesting and, and uh, something that Gerhardus Voss would touch on, the organic relationship of all the scriptures. Uh, right. Something some people might say is the difference between uh, what Dr. Enns has proposed as a Christotelic reading of scripture versus uh, what some of his critics would prefer uh, calling a Christocentric, the emphasis upon yeah. that organic nature. All right, let, let, me, let, let me respond to that. May I? Please, absolutely. His use of Christotelic is excellent. I think it's better than Christocentric. I think it's excellent. Um, and of course, everything depends on definitions. Uh, the way he fleshes that out, Sure. I, I, I disagree with, but I do think that uh, Christocentric can lead to the misimpression that we're reading Christ into every verse of Scripture. That's something very, that he would emphasize also in class, it's particularly yeah. his concern not to have a very weak idea yeah. of Christocentrism or to make pat yeah. connections. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think Christos, a Christocentric reader, reading can be swallowed up and included in the Christotelic. But actually, um, uh, I think we could speak broadly of a teleocentric reading. All of Scripture is heading for an eschaton. Mm. Um, and in fact, um, somehow those two need to be put together, because I, for myself, I would contend that eschatology precedes Chris, uh, soteriology, um, because I think you begin with Adam and uh, inaugurated a new creation if he'd been faithful, uh, according to the covenant of work stipulations, which I hold to myself, uh, he would have inherited uh, escalated, uh, consummated mm -hmm. uh, blessings, and um, I... so... I, I do think that's helpful, but it just depends on how you flesh that out, and I, that's where Enns and I disagree. That's very helpful. Thanks for that uh, clarification. Dr. Uh, Truman, I wanted to get you in, in on this conversation. Do you have anything of particular concern, you part, uh, being a, a church historian, do you have any questions that maybe relate uh, to that angle on this issue? Um, I wonder if... Uh Greg might comment on what he sees as the significance of the 17th century for modern understandings of inerrancy. One of the things that's often said is that inerrancy is an American issue. It seems from my reading of the 17th century that it's at least consistent with, if not a legitimate development from 17th century thinking. I wonder if Greg has any comments on the idea that this is a distinctly American issue or problem rather than a, a Christian issue or problem. Um, yeah, I, I'm very, it's almost a mantra now to say that, um, to really, uh, hold to inerrancy today, to believe that propositions are important, uh, those two things usually are labeled enlightenment concerns. And, um, quite frankly, if you, um, look at the church fathers, let's go before the 16th century, uh, 17th century, on up uh, uh, through even to the 19th century, I see a continuity between the use of referring to Scripture as um, perfect. In fact, it's intriguing. Westminster Confession calls Scripture perfect. Very intriguing. Um, uh, there's a nice little um, article in a book edited by John Hanna, Inerrancy and the Church, where the uh, uh, a nice review of the um, what the church some of the church fathers held um, 
think he has an article called The Doctrine of Scripture in the Early Church. And um, I, I think that this, uh, there's a continuity. Um, and in my view, the Enlightenment problem with it was uh, making reason idolatrous. And I don't think that evangelicals are doing that, though sometimes we might. I mean, all of us have our idols, don't we? And um, until the day we're fully sanctified, we'll, uh, to one degree or another, have our idols. So that, that may have been the case at times among some evangelicals, but uh, uh, it didn't have to be, and it wasn't uh, to a great extent. So I would go even earlier than the, the 17th century, but uh, I'm afraid that, uh, and I suspect uh, rightly, that Carl knows a bit more about that than I do. That, if I could uh, follow um, up on that. A, yeah, please, go ahead, Dr. Truman. One of the things I've heard, um, not relative to, to Peter Enzi's book, but relative to another book that was published last year on the doctrine of Scripture by a systematician, um, the British title is The Divine Inspiration of Scripture by Andrew yes. McGowan. And there was some right. debate about that in, in British circles. And one of the comments I heard made was, look, we're not talking about Christology or doctrine of God here. It's only the doctrine of Scripture. Now, clearly, recent events at Westminster indicate that Westminster is taking very, very seriously the doctrine of Scripture. What do you think, what do you think the evangelical educational world is going to look like 20 or 30 years from now, Greg, if, if more people don't make a clear stand on this? I think, um, I mean, again, I gave you my opinion. Um, uh, as uh, Walter Kaiser would always say, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Um, but um, you're not for profit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> I wish I were for profit, but at any rate, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I think that uh, more and more. I mean, I think I, th- I think the answer to that, quite frankly, has already been given. If there's a, a not much, if there's a free a free fall, not much clarification about the, the doctrine of Scripture, and it continues, then I think what has happened to Princeton Seminary, Harvard, and Yale will happen again. Um, what I've been quite encouraged about are schools like Southern Theological Seminary. Um, and uh, quite frankly, I, I don't mind saying the recent uh, developments that uh, Westminster. Um, it's rare, however, to see that happening. And uh, so if there's not uh, a strong attempt by an administration um, to, to, to hold the line, to clarify these things, then schools will continue to uh, free fall. Um, Dr. Beal, I had a question following up on uh, Dr. Truman's first question about um, the history of the inerrancy debate. And in that book you mentioned by John Hanna, Inerrancy mm-hmm. in the Church, there's, there's an article by J.I. Packer where he discusses in, under a section the modern inerrancy debate, and he says that the word inerrancy was not used in Protestant circles until the 20th century, uh, until almost the 20th century, but it was used in Roman Catholic scholarship, but that he, he pretty much implies that the word infallibility was used to encompass the mm-hmm. idea of inerrancy. Do you think mm-hmm. that that's accurate? I, I would think it's probably accurate. 
And beginning in the 20th century, I think that infallibility began to be just, you know, distinct from inerrancy. But I, I, I would suspect, I haven't done the study that uh, Packer has done, but in fact, I, I, on the other hand, I, I would probably disagree to some degree. I think that the language uh, uh, that you find in the Fathers um, does speak. Uh, it may not use that exact word in error, right. but uh, it, it will use words, um, well, like the Westminster Confession, perfect. I mean, that's, um, that's pretty close. Or it is without falsehood. Um, uh, various synonyms are used. I mean, I, I think as in biblical studies in church history, we don't want to make the word concept fallacy. Um, they're close synonyms that express the very same, um, very same concept. Um, so uh, you, you come very close to uh, the word. Um, for example, if you read um, Hannah's article, yeah, as you come close to the word inerrancy. Right. And then my last question is, do you think that we are looking at uh, the uh, kind of a resurrection of the infallibility, not inerrancy discussion in some of this in modern evangelical scholarship, that these men are, certain men are attesting that the Bible is infallible and that it's the only rule of infallible, of, it's the infallible rule of faith and life, but it's not inerrant, and that God essentially is speaking through the errors? I, I think it's another expression of that, as well as a, a creative expression of Bertianism. Hmm. Especially, you see, you can see why Reformed people who have a high view of the sovereignty of God, uh, I mean, Bart said uh, that, that, that God, that there are errors in Scripture, and he speaks through those errors. You ought to look at, again, some mm-hmm. of my quotations at the end of the book. That's very helpful, but uh, how, do, how does the error relate to... Um, the humanness. One thing's doc, one thing Doctor Enns is is interested in in exploring is uh, talking about how Jesus, the way he puts it, Jesus's humanity corresponds to the errors, if that's the appropriate word, that are found in Scripture. So the the whole title of the book, uh, Inspiration and Incarnation, is making this parallel between the divine and human in Christ, and then the divine and human in, in Scripture. Um, what is usually even meant by error, and what is its relation to humanness? Well, I think that you can um, go through the scriptures, and uh, the word truth is used. Um, and you find that it's used in various ways. What it means is that what an author is speaking corresponds to the reality of what he's speaking about. Um, so that he's the biblical authors are not so jaundiced that, uh, according to postmodern contentions, that they, they, they can't represent the truth of reality outside of them. Um, so I, uh, I, I think there are a number of uh, even biblical words you can trace. The word no, for example, mm-hmm. yada, gnosko. I mean, it's used all over the place. Carson's got a very nice word study, if, if you're interested, in mm-hmm. uh, that little that little book of his um, on um, postmodernism that, that he wrote on the emergent church, where he goes through some of these words with no, for example, and shows that people can know things that correspond to the reality 
that is outside of them, and um, and hence they can express things truly. Um, now, with regard to the what some might call the sticky wicked issue of uh, Christ and uh, his relation of his humanity and his uh, deity to uh, the human authors. Um, I think that precisely, if I could try to represent Enns' view, which is hard, because he never unpacks it. Mm. That's number one. Uh, number two, here's what I think he holds. That Christ did not commit moral error, but did commit intellectual error. And um, so, for example... Um, uh, he he could have gotten dates and historical facts wrong, but those that, that has nothing to do with salvific issues or moral issues, and uh, those errors are part and parcel of the um, uh, the humanity of Christ, Christ accommodating himself to humanity, and therefore, yes, let's carry that right over to. Uh, the human authors. Um, the problem is that a number have said that this is not a, a metaphor that walks on all four legs. Uh, that is, there's a perfect parallelism between Christ's incarnation and that of um, the um, human authors and the uh, divine author. Right. There's no uh, one person with two natures. It just doesn't work very well. Uh, John Webster, intriguingly, in some lectures that have now been published from a couple of years ago at Wheaton College, um, has also uh, argued we have to be very careful about uh, uh, making a tight parallel between Christ's incarnation and um, uh, the divine word through the biblical authors. Um, and so I, I think ultimately also this issue gets to one's Christology. Um, and, and in that regard, I don't want to put Carl on the spot, but um, Carl, uh, how would you re relate, the, uh, relate Christology to this notion of the possibility of Christ making historical but not more moral errors or errors with regard to salvific issues? Well, that's a good question, Greg. I think... Christology is always a somewhat tricky matter, but I would say that on the one hand we need to do justice to Christ's humanity. Scripture makes it very clear that Christ himself develops in knowledge as he grows. Uh, one can assume that if he were to go into his father's carpentry shop and see Joseph using a saw or a plane, he would probably have asked, you know, what's that you're using, Dad? And Joseph would have explained it to him. And I think if we're doing justice to Christ's humanity, we would have to say that he learned, he developed. That seems to be what scripture requires. It seems to be what classic Christology requires. To move from that to saying that his mind was so limited by his age that he couldn't transcend errors that were commonly held at that time or to say that his humanity would require him to make statements of historical error um, relative to history, things like that. I think that's quite a leap. Uh, I think that when somebody makes that kind of statement, I would want to ask questions about how exactly the 
the divine nature was relating to the human nature in the one person. Did the divinity of Christ mean anything in terms of uh, an epistolo- epistemological uh, thing relative to, to Christ's person? So I would be very, very uncomfortable about jumping from the humanity of Christ to this idea that he was saying things that were erroneous about uh, uh, historical issues or, or matters relating to the Old Testament. Um, Having said all that, I also have certain concerns about the whole idea of drawing an analogy between the Incarnation and Scripture as well. I think that one of the things about the Incarnation is it's unique, and therefore any analogy with anything else can only be a very, very faint one. And the problem, of course, with using analogies is that quite often what starts as a heuristic model to help explain something becomes a a controlling model that starts to shape the very way we think about these things. And I guess I'm on Warfield's side in this in thinking that the the incarnational analogy relative to Scripture has to be used extremely carefully and is perhaps not as useful as many people would think that it is. This has been a, a great discussion and I regret to say that we're just about out of time. We only wanted to keep you uh, for an hour because I know we've got schedules to deal with. Um, but as we close, Dr. Bill, what books would might you recommend to people to read on this subject? Uh, maybe for the person who's who's concerned uh, and, and would like a, a better understanding of inerrancy and its importance. Is there anything you'd recommend for people? <sighs> well, I mean, there's some... Um <clears throat> really old ones. I really would uh, want to mention again Woodbridge's work mm-hmm. called Biblical Authority. I'll tell you this little work that I reread a year or two ago that I think is outstanding, even though it was written in the 50s, and that is Packer's work on fundamentalism and the Word of God. Um, yeah. I think it's a good little work. Um, good solid work is some of the results of the Council on Biblical Inerrancy edited by Geisler uh, through Zondervan. Um, there, there are a number of others I could recommend here. With regard to the ancient Near East and the Old Testament and the problem of mythology, there is a new book coming out. Um, I believe it's with Zondervan by John Oswalt, O-S-W-A-L-T. It's not off the presses yet, but um, my understanding is that he, he will be interacting with viewpoints like that of Peter M's as well as others uh, from a perspective Sweet. that would be compatible with my own um, my own approach. Mm, excellent. And well, of course... Could I chip... Yeah, go ahead. Please. I was going to chip in and say um, Warfield, because Warfield's exegesis of relevant passages in Scripture to Scripture's own nature, I think, has not been surpassed. And one of the mm. things that is interesting about those who so swiftly dismiss Warfield, Peter Enns and Andrew McGowan being two examples, is... They don't really address his exegesis. So I would uh, strongly counsel people to look at Warfield's exegesis of the relevant text in Scripture. I would completely agree with that. I mean, if you had time, I've got a whole shelf here, but I don't think we've got uh, time. And Warfield is on that shelf. Um, so uh, I, would, uh, I would highly recommend that. I. I, if we had time, and maybe we can do this over a cup of coffee at some point, I'd very much like to address Andrew McGowan's contention that the traditional evangelical syllogism about uh, inerrancy is not scriptural. That is, 
he can he contends against the syllogism that since God is flawless and therefore his oral word is flawless, therefore the written word of God is flawless. He says that's not a biblical contention, and uh, I'm, I'm a, probably imminently going to publish an article. Um, that is a revision of a paper that I gave as a crossway lecture at uh, the ETS conference this past November titled, Can the Bible be Fully Inspired and Yet Contain Errors? And it is basically trying to show that what McGowan thinks is unbiblical is squarely biblical. And I especially analyze some intertextuality of Old Testament allusions in the book of Revelation. But I know we're over time, so I won't elaborate. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just to whet uh, our appetites. Maybe we can discuss that here in the future. I do want to, of course, recommend that people uh, take a look at this book, The Erosion of Inerrancy and Evangelicalism. You can pick that up from Crossway. Uh, Westminster, uh, WTSbooks.com has a good price on it. You can also pick up other books from Dr. Beal. I would highly recommend his commentary in the new International Greek Testament series, on the book of Revelation, uh, you can also uh, find uh, his uh, commentary on the New Testament's use of the Old, along with uh, Dr. D.A. Carson, uh, which we have spoken about many times in the past, and uh, a book about uh, you become what you worship. Is that correct? Yes, it we is. Become. Uh, we become. We become. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, um, uh, uh, whenever I uh, give the title of the book, I, I put a like in there because... Um, it's actually a, a metaphor, as it stated, but I actually would have liked that it be a simile. We become like what we worship. Certainly. But, uh, at any rate, we don't become God, but we become like God. <laughs> right. We so. presume that much, but thank you for that clarification. Of course, also, Dr. Truman's work is available. You can pick up Minority Report or The Wages of Spin. And his uh, re- most recent, I believe, is John Owen, Reformed Catholic Renaissance Man. All of those are available also at Westminster Books. But we want to really thank you both for joining us. I appreciate you both taking your time on this uh, uh, sensitive issue uh, and a controversial one at that, but it's something that we find very important uh, to address, uh, this issue of inerrancy in the church. So thank you, guys. Well, very good. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it. Uh, Excellent. I also want to point people back to uh, the Reformed Forum. You can visit us at reformedforum.org. If you have any questions or comments, please uh, fill out uh, the little form we've got there, and we'll get your email You can also find more information about our other programs, including the Reformed Media Review, which uh, we'll have a new episode coming out shortly to discuss all the new books, because we've had a a whole bunch of them that have just come out, and all that's available online. We hope to hear from you soon. We thank you for listening, and we hope you'll be back with us next time on Christ the Center.